Please turn with me in your Bible to Ezra chapter 6. The book of Ezra chapter 6. This is not part of my sermon, but just singing that song. Maybe you have this experience where a particular time in your life you sung a particular hymn and it just burns itself into your memory in a long-term kind of way. And every time I hear this song, without exception, I think about a time that I sung it. Uh, Scott, you may remember this. This is when uh, a child, so when I, I grew up, this is not part of my sermon. It's just a little extra thing here, okay? Um, I, I grew up, uh, a girl named Emily Floyd was in my class at Westminster my whole 13 years I was there. Her dad was my doctor as a kid, Dr. Steve Floyd. He was my childhood doctor, and uh, when I had a strap, he was the guy sticking that thing in the back of your throat, and uh, he would take us on field trips and drive us to Atlanta and different things as a class. And uh, I graduated from, from high school, 2005, and loved Steve Floyd, and uh, that September, uh, jogging before work, he was hit, struck by a car, and died instantly. And, and uh, you know, I knew him since I was five, and we went to his funerals at Watkinsville First Baptist in, that, in the big, uh, their gymnasium, their life building, and uh, lots of people were there, lots of people were there. I don't know, maybe six, 800 people. It was a huge room full of people. And when we sang, we sang that song, and I was a new Christian. I'd been a Christian for about two years. And the reality of eternity hit me overwhelmingly singing that I am bound, I am bound for, for the promised land. So every single time I hear that song, I think back to fall of 2005 when we sang it uh, at his funeral, and it, it just so real and so true. All right, uh, Ezra chapter 6, uh, our message for today. This is exciting news. The temple that we have been waiting on for, they've been waiting for 22 years since Cyrus sent them back. Sent them back. The temple is going to be completed today in today's text. This is exciting for, for all of us who've been anticipating this moment and for certainly the people of Israel who have been waiting. Uh, the name of the sermon is the second temple completed dedication and celebration. And this is Ezra chapter 6, verses 13 to 22. I want to read the text, but beforehand, I'll give you three very simple points. Uh, I got a little help for these points, no joke, from the ESV headings, okay? <laughs> I was struggling with this, and so I adapted these from the ESV headings. Very simple points. Number one, temple completed, verses 13 to 15. Number two, temple dedicated, verses 16 to 18. And number three, Passover celebrated, verses 19 to 22. I thought we'll just keep with the very basic gist of what's happening, and then we'll build our points around those three simple parts. So temple completed, temple dedicated, Passover celebrated. And let me read the text for us. Before I read it, remember last week, if you were here, it was looking not good for the people. They had, start to re they had started to rebuild, remember, with Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets encouraging them. And as soon as they started making progress, what always seems to happen? Opposition rose up. And they were being told, are you allowed to build? They're taking names down, right, to take back to the, head, to the headquarters. And King Darius finds out after scouring their archives in the place called Ekbatana that they have a document that says, yeah, you're right, Cyrus did say, uh, at this point, it's about 18 years earlier, that people should go back to their homelands and rebuild their temples, including the Jews here. And so they, that is true. And so not only does that happen, but remember the pagan king Darius notices that Cyrus said it should be financed by the Persians. And so what does Darius do? He says, we're going to help finance this project. We're going to pay for their animal sacrifices. And if any of our people gets in the way or interferes with my decree, something bad's going to happen to them. You remember that? A, uh, 
a beam will be taken out of their house and they'll be hoisted up on, their, on the beam and they're going to be impaled. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to not disobey what Darius is saying. So that's what just happened and that allows in God's providence the temple to come to completion. So again, this is the word of the Lord, Ezra chapter 6, verse 13. Then according to the, to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Sheshthar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished in the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests, they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray together again. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this text, this celebration of the completion of this second temple and this Passover celebration followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God, show us what is here for us to see, what we can apply to our lives, how we can be encouraged from this text. And God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith and strengthen our obedience to you as we walk by faith, not by sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and start with our first point here, which is the temple completed, uh, verses 13 to 15. And I'm going to begin just by rereading the part that I just read. So just look at thir verse 13 again, Ezra 6, 13. Then according to the word sent by Darius, the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheshthar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. We kind of smile. They did it with all diligence because they did not want to be hoisted up on a beam, okay? They, they wanted to do what the king said, so they did it with all diligence, even if they might have been less trustworthy earlier in the chapter. They're going to obey the king. Verse 14, this is an amazing verse. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Now, this is a wonderful bookend moment. I love these bookend moments that happen in the structure of a book. That is the end of a bookend. 
The temple is being completed, and you've got Zechariah and Haggai prophesying. The beginning of the bookend is chapter 5, verse 1. If you remember, turn back to chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the beginning of this part of the story. 5-1, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, this is so obvious, and it's so significant. God works through His Word. And here's the thing. Very often, God's Word, whether it's being preached or whether it's being studied in a Bible study, whether you're reading it early in the morning with a cup of coffee nearby as you're trying to wake up, or whether it's being read in the evening before bed, God's Word sometimes, at least to this world, may not look like any great thing, but it is an omnipotent force because God's Word is living and active. Listen, this is not a cliche. This is not some Christian bumper sticker, the Word is living and active, or, you know, the bread of life never gets stale. This is not one of those, not one of those Christian bumper sticker things right here, okay? This is true. God's Word actually does work on our heart when we are exposed to God's Word. God's word, what, in Isaiah 55, never returns void. It goes out and accomplishes exactly the purpose for which God sent it, and it returns back to God, having done exactly what God said. God's word never goes forth in vain. God's word does the work of God by the power of the Spirit. And um, if you think of, um, we, were, we were at the beach, uh, at uh, near Panama City Beach, it's Mexico Beach, uh, a few uh, weeks ago with our family. It was a lot of fun. And uh, one of the days we were there, it was stormy, and then a few days later, it got sunny. We were loving the sunny days. And uh, we're not that far from, I guess, an Air Force base or something is nearby, and so we hear rumor that sometimes fighter jets will fly by. And I don't care how old you are, I, I, even I'm excited when the fighter jet is going to come by. So we, I, we, we all, we're on the water, and all of a sudden, I'm with Micah and our kids, and all of a sudden, we hear the, the, that deep sound, you know, and you can't see it. Those things are so small. You're looking, you're straining your eyes, and in the deep blue sky, I see this tiny black dot in some kind of fighter jet, and it's flying. Okay, so it's far away. We barely see it. And then a little bit later, all of a sudden, we look up. I don't know if these are F-22 Raptors. I don't know what these were. They look like maybe that, F-22s. We look up, and over us, flying in formation, three of these things, I think it was, come zipping right over our head, low to the ground, over the beach. Again, the 45-year-old guy just turns into a boy all of a sudden. Just every, every, all the guys are just standing there like this. Uh, everyone's getting their phone out to try to see it. And, and I'm in awe of these things as well. And, then, you know, they come over you. You don't quite hear them at first, and then they come over you, and it's just got that deafening sound as they, as they pass by. Well, listen. When they're flying in formation, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing to see. It's pretty amazing. I want you to apply that to, to this. God works like, like planes flying in tandem. Where God's word goes, God's spirit goes to work. You hear that? Where God's word is going is where God's spirit is going. They fly in tandem. And when God's word is being preached, read, studied, you better know that the spirit of God is at work through the word of God. This is why in the book of Acts, what do we hear over and over? The word of God was triumphing. It was spreading. It was multiplying. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, the word of God has been bearing fruit and increasing since the day you heard the word of truth for yourselves. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. So just know God's word is truly active and God's spirit works through his word and God's word is not read, listened to, studied, spoken, preached in vain. God's word accomplishes his work. And right here, we are seeing for ourselves, remember the book of Haggai that we looked at recently. 
Haggai began his ministry, and what happened? How many days before the building project resumed? 24-day period. In 24 days, Haggai goes from a no one who's standing up to preach, suddenly the whole people of God are convicted of sin, called to account, and what? Spurred to obedience. Everything changes in Haggai's first 24 days. And you remember how long Haggai ministered? Just under four months. And he's got a whole book in the Bible because God's word was effective. Zechariah comes alongside him. He he overlaps with Haggai, but goes further than Haggai. And and we have more of his material than Haggai. And I want to take a moment to turn to Zechariah. So this is a a little bit to your right, near the end of your Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah, excuse me, chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4 comes just before uh, the last books of of the Old Testament, Malachi, and then you get to the New Testament. Zechariah, right after Haggai, chapter 4, now I'm not going to be able to explain all of this chapter, it would deserve its own sermon, but I do want to read through this briefly here, and it's not the most wonderful image in the world, uh, this is the best I could do, okay, so you've got this image here, it's not even a perfect representation, but this picture, this, this chapter is hard to visualize what's being said, this at least gives you a little help as to what's being visualized in what we're about to read, and Here we go. It's a vision that Zechariah gets. Zechariah 4, verse 1. So this is what he is preaching as the the building project for the temple is going on. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left side. Now, pause there. That's a little bit hard to follow, isn't it? So this is not a perfect illustration, but it kind of gives you an idea. There's two olive trees, one on either side of the lampstand, a a menorah, essentially. And there's one branch from each tree coming close to a bowl that hangs over over this menorah. And here's the idea. These are olive trees which produce olive oil. Olive oil is what burns for the lamps, right? So these olive trees are alive and their branches are pouring into that bowl an endless supply of olive oil. So these, this menorah is never going out. You get the picture? They got a fresh supply of olive oil. It gathers in the bowl. It's poured through golden pipes down into the menorah and it fuels these seven lamps, okay? This represents, well, we'll see what it represents in a moment. Verse four. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Now just pause here. We feel a little comfort because even Zechariah is not sure what's going on right now. Okay, Zechariah is confused. We, we feel some, some encouragement because we're also a little confused. Verse six. Then he said to me, now this is amazing. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, that is Zechariah, to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. 
and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, before we get too far, this is an amazing... Haven't you heard these verses before somewhere in your life? You've heard some of these verses? This is an amazing text. Here's what God is saying. Zerubbabel, he's the leader. He should be the Davidic king, but he's not a king. He's a governor, right, under Persia. But Zerubbabel is the kind of the leader in the rebuilding project. What does Zerubbabel see in front of him around where we're at in Ezra? He sees insurmountable obstacles to finishing the temple. What does he have in front of him? A mountain. That symbolizes you can't get this job done. You got a mountain in front of you. You can't get over it. You can't get past it. You have insurmountable obstacles in front of you, like the Persian government, right? Like the Samaritans who are against you, like financial hardship, like the fact that your crops are not coming in like you want. Remember Haggai, they, don't, they, they, put, they pour in uh, their crops into a bowl and they spill out like holes are in the bottom of the bag. They, they, they don't have enough, right? Insurmountable obstacles. How is this job ever going to get done? Again, verse six. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone, the final completion stone of the temple, amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Do you see what he's saying? Zerubbabel, it looks impossible, but God is going to get this done, not because you're smart, not because you're strong. Not because you can manipulate people to do what you want. Not because you can figure out how to get this to happen or because you've got power, because you don't. This is going to happen as a display of the power of my Holy Spirit. I am going to do something, God says, that's going to make the temple be completed, that I'm going to get the credit for and you will not because only my spirit can level this playing field and bring about the top stone in the completion of the temple. Do you see what's being said here? Now look, look again at... Uh, Look at verse 9. I'm reading it again. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Okay. I want to go ahead and start making an application of this text to us today. Jesus said he's going to build his New Testament temple. It's called the church. And what did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Right? I'm going to build my church. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, I'm going to build my church, Christ the cornerstone. Now, here's, here's the promise. Both corporately for all God's true people and individually for each of us as God's people, if we know the Lord, here's what we know. Jesus is not going to give up on us, right? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus is not going to abandon you, Christian. Even when you struggle, even when you suffer, even when you sin. I mean, we just looked at that in Sunday school, 1 John 2. I'm writing these things to you, little children, that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. Don't use this as an excuse to sin. I'm writing this so that you would resist sin. But to Christians, he says, if anyone does sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation, the wrath atoner for your sins, not for yours only, also for the sins of the whole world. Now, do you see this verse? Jesus is saying, listen, 
Even when you sin and struggle and things feel impossible, know that I'm not turning away from you. In fact, here's the crazy thing. When Christians struggle with sin, there's no excuse, but Jesus in heaven pleads his blood before the throne of God. He is your intercessor before God. He is asking for grace to be poured out on you, for repentance to be restored to you, for a transformation to come to you, and for God to not forsake you. And Jesus says, look, I have shed my blood to secure the salvation of my bride. This one right here is struggling. I have shed my blood for him, for her. God, do not let him be forsaken. Do not let her be forsaken. Encourage him. Strengthen her. Return her to myself. Grant repentance. Draw back. Just know that whatever is in the way, the Lord will flatten it, and the Lord will, in his, at the end of the day, he will build his church. He will not forsake us. He will not abandon us. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, now look at verse, middle of verse 10. It splits into a new paragraph, at least in this translation. These seven, the seven lamps, the, the lights, are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. God's omniscient. He sees all. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones or two sons of new oil who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate here. It could be referring to uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. It could be referring to Zechariah and Haggai. However we see it, the point is this. God is providing his spirit in abundant supply to his people in a way that will never be cut off and never be run out because God, by his spirit, is going to be faithful to his word. He's going to bring things to completion. Now, let's turn back to Ezra chapter 6. So that, among other things, is what Zechariah is prophesying and preaching to the people. Start with me, the middle of verse 14, if you can find this spot, it says, after Zechariah and Haggai are mentioned, verse 14, they finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel, by the decree of the God of Israel, and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the house was finished. Now, now listen to this. God, how does he get this work done? By his spirit, and what does he do? God works his providential sovereign will over kings. That's how God gets the job done. So God made a decree that the temple would be finished. And then God uses, he ordains human means to bring that about. What are the means? Cyrus's decree, which was reinforced by Darius, and later, about 60 years from now, he jumps into the future. 60 years from now, Artaxerxes is also going to reinforce this decree and allow Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. So three kings, none of them who love the Lord truly, all of them pagan polytheists, those three kings, what, what do we find out? Is God in sovereign control over the will of kings? Yes. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, but he is not stained by sin. God works the will of these kings in such a way that they decree the rebuilding of this house. Do you hear it here? Human strength could never have manipulated these kings to do what God wanted them to do. Only God could sovereignly bring this decree about. And all those Persian kings reinforced the decree of Cyrus so that God's 
kingdom can advance, his temple can be built. Verse 15 of Ezra 6. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This is the year 516 BC. This is what, about 22 years or so after they returned uh, from the, the decree with Cyrus. It took them four and a half years to rebuild the temple. Four and a half years have gone by during the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, and they have completed the temple. Now let's move to uh, point, number, point number two. Temple is dedicated, verses 16 to 18. The temple is dedicated, verse 16. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now, this is a wonderful moment, but let's just, I know comparison can be dangerous. Let's just compare it to when Solomon dedicated the first temple, and it doesn't even come close. So here you've got what? 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs. Not bad for the return to exiles. Listen to how many Solomon dedicated. First Kings says this, Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house to the Lord. So listen, is this still in some ways a day of small things compared to what Solomon experienced? Sure. But is God still truly and mightily at work amongst his people? Yes. Yes, he is. And we should be encouraged by that. Look at verse 18. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. This is what is so commendable. These people, at least now, listen, I hate to tell you this. You probably already know. Next week, Lord willing, we get to Ezra finally shows up. It's been six chapters of his book. He hasn't even been in the, in the book yet. Chapter seven to 10, Ezra shows up. And Ezra is going to go to Israel and he's going to find that there is some, some sin amongst the people. And it's tragic and it leads to fasting and mourning and tearing his clothes and prayer and repentance. But at least now for a moment, are the people submitting themselves to the book of Moses? Yes. And you know God's spirit is at work. Listen, when we are loving this book, submitting to this book, wanting to obey this book, I mean, you want to know a sign of a true revival of the Spirit of God, an awakening of the Spirit of God? It's not when people start dancing and jumping around and acting out of control. That's not the sign of the Spirit. The sign of the Spirit is a passionate reverence, fear, and trembling for this book. If you want to know that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, if you have an insatiable hunger for God's Word, that is a sign the Spirit is at work in you. If you cannot get enough of God's word, if you love soaking in God's word, if God's word is moving and working on you, convicting you, bringing joy, life, delight, satisfaction, if you anticipate spending time communing with God in accordance with his word, that is a great sign that God is at work in your life in an amazing way. What you should be afraid of is boredom with this book, apathy regarding this book, and indifference about obeying the specific regulations and rules in the new covenant for us as Christians today in this book, that is a sign to be feared. But a zeal for this book is a sign of God's spirit at work, which certainly God's spirit is at work in this moment. There is great joy 
Let me just say here, if, if you want to meet with God, we meet with God in accordance with what he has laid down in this book. So the God that we worship is the God described in this book. Let me just, I don't want to rant here. Rants are not usually helpful. Controlled rants, maybe, that's maybe better. I'll just say this, in, in the American evangelical world, we get a lot of our doctrine of God from our imagination. We get a lot of our doctrine of what God's like based on how we feel about what we would like God to be like. I feel like God wouldn't do that. Well, thanks for sharing your heart, but that doesn't mean a whole lot, okay? I, my God wouldn't do that, okay? I mean, that's fine, but are we getting our view of God from the words of this book? I mean, the view of Jesus today in the church is frankly, I think, far from the biblical Jesus. If you were here this summer for our Revelation series, did you meet a Jesus who is holy? A Jesus who is awesome in the true sense of the word? A Jesus who makes the angels and cherubim and seraphim bow down in awe in heaven? A Jesus who comes with a sword in his mouth to judge his own churches who are unrepentant and he says, I'm gonna remove your lampstand, I'm gonna throw some of you on a sick bed so that those who've committed fornication with Jezebel will die? You go, whoa! Is our view of Jesus shaped by modern American sensibilities of a nice guy? Or is our view of Jesus shaped by what Scripture teaches? He is wonderful in his kindness. He is gracious and condescending in his love. He is also ferocious in his holiness. He is great in his goodness. He is a God that is beyond all that we know. And so we must allow our view of God to be constrained and understood according to what he teaches us in his word. And the people, at least now, at least in this moment, are wanting to do that. Let's move to our last point. The Passover celebrated, verses 19 to 22. Look at verse 19. A couple amazing insights here. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Now, let me just stop here. The people right now who are keeping Passover, my assumption is virtually all of them have never kept Passover in their entire life. This was not something that was done, I'm, we assume, in Babylon. This is something you need the temple in place in order to offer the lambs at the temple. This is, this is something that would have been the first time for virtually all who were there, except perhaps of the oldest people, maybe. This would have been an amazing experience. Look at what happens, verse 20. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, this may stretch your memory because it was months ago that we were here. But you, do you remember in chapter four of Ezra, we won't read it, but you remember chapter four, some of the Samaritans in the area came with ill intentions to try to stop them from building the, the temple. And they said, listen, remember they said, you have no part in this. Remember that? They completely cut them off. They said, don't even lift a stone to help us. You are not going to help us rebuild the temple. It's only for us to do, the covenant people. You say, wow, seems pretty exclusivistic. Well, a couple things. Number one, they knew that unrepentant paganism coming into the people would do what? Corrupt the people. They don't want to let that in. But does that mean that Gentiles and pagans cannot become part of God's people? No. One more time. Ezra 6.21 is an amazing verse in Ezra. The Passover was eaten by the people of Israel. That's obvious. 
who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord. Do you hear that? God was not opposed to foreign pagan people joining God's people, but you know what they had to do? They had to repent of worshiping all false gods and pagan gods. They had to worship Yahweh as the one true God. If they were men, they would receive the sign of circumcision to truly join the people of God. And when they trusted in Yahweh alone, guess what? They were members in good standing of the covenant community. They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah that they would trust in, and they would offer sacrifice and keep Passover with the most ethnically Jewish of Jews there in that place. God is not opposed to conversion in the Old Testament. But here's the issue. You've got to renounce the other gods that you worship. You don't just add Jesus to your Babylonian gods or your Samaritan gods or your whatever, Assyrian gods. No, you renounce all other gods and you become a monotheist. You worship the Lord God only. I'll just say to us today, I know most of us are believers, but if anyone here is not a believer or listening online, today we don't worship Asherah poles. Seems crude and odd and primitive. We don't worship uh, Marduk or these other kinds of gods. The Egyptian gods seem so odd and strange to us, and that's good. But man, we worship money. We think money can give us all that we want in this world. I mean, we just evaluate people based on how much they make. Like, that, that guy's doing pretty well. Look at the size of that guy's house. Look how new that car is. Man, look, they got a lake house. Look at this. Oh, look over here. Look at this. Look where their kids are going. Look what, look what their kids, kids just got a chance to do. They must have paid. Man, these people must. And what are we doing? We suddenly we're starting to evaluate everyone based on finances. What is it that you are tempted to evaluate other people by? What standard are you tempted to evaluate other people by? And you will find out pretty quickly who you're living for. Because if it's a physical attractiveness, you have everyone on a scale of how physically attractive or unattractive you think they are, and you value them in that way. Athleticism, and you value them like that, right? What, what is it? Intelligence, right? Their family background, where they went to school, whatever it may be. And we evaluate people on this sort of made-up worldly grid. To return from idols today is to say, I'm not going to regard people according to the flesh. I'm not going to worship idols like that. I'm going to make Jesus my standard, I'm going to view everyone through the eyes of the gospel and through Christ, either as in Christ or not in Christ and needing Christ. That's how I'm going to view the world. And I'm going to live for him. And even though I'm not perfect, I really want to live for his glory alone, not for my own. And if that's where we are in our struggle in this world, know that that is a sign of repentance. And that is a sign that we are joining the true people of God, repentant by faith. Verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I'm sorry, I just have to add a technical footnote right here before we get to communion. This is not the main point, but it may, maybe some of you right now just read that and you go, the king of Assyria? Assyria has been a dead kingdom for centuries. What is he talking about? The king of Assyria? What is that? Here's what I think is going on here. First of all, he did reign over the area of Assyria, so it's not wrong to call him that. But here's what I think is going on. In the biblical writer's minds, tell me if you think this is true, Daniel says the same thing. Are Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome all kind of the same thing, just kind of reshaping itself over and over? Yeah, and, and what's being said here is, listen, these kings are really no different ultimately than even going back to Assyria, Babylon, Persia. It's all of a big part. It's all kind of the, the, this, this beastly anti-God system, and yet even in that system, God has turned the heart of the king, Darius, 
so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. Now, one last point, and I'm going to move into communion here. I've thought about this for several years, and maybe you have too. It's a remarkable argument from silence. And you know, sometimes arguments from silence can be pretty weak, but there are some arguments from silence that are quite loud, and this is definitely one of them. They just rebuilt the temple. They dedicated the temple. The, the, the Hebrew word for dedicate is Hanukkah, to dedicate the temple. They just dedicated the temple. They, they rebuilt it. They're having their first Passover. As they rededicate the temple, there's this incredibly silent thing that is not mentioned. There is no mention of the glory of God coming down in fire and smoke and filling the most holy place. And you say, what's the big deal about that? You understand that the other two times a temple or tabernacle was completed, the first thing that happens is that. Exodus 40, the last paragraph of Exodus. Remember, they've spent chapters building that amazing tabernacle with all the gold and tapestry and the weaving inside. And what happens? They finish it. Moses is standing there. The glory cloud comes off Sinai, essentially. It comes down, fills the most holy place. It was so blazing bright and terrifying, even Moses could not enter for a time. Fast forward to Solomon. Solomon finishes building his temple. <clears throat> Here's what it says. <clears throat> and when the, <clears throat> excuse me, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But in Ezra 6, there is no mention. Now, I'm just, this is my argument from silence. If it would have happened, I think it would be included in the text. I don't think it happened. There's actually no mention in this part of the Bible of God's glory refilling the temple. We know God's glory left the temple before Babylon because Ezekiel saw it fly away on the chariot wheels. There is no report of it having come back. And I think that's one of the dramatic tensions at the end of the Old Testament that leads us to the last book of the Old Testament where Malachi says these words because the people are wondering, is God's glory going to come back? Remember these words, Malachi 3? Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Listen. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. You hear that? They're saying, Lord, are you going to come back and fill the temple? Where are you? And the Lord says, I'm going to send a messenger first, John the Baptist, and then I'm coming, and I'm going to come into the temple. And you know what everyone's expecting? They're expecting blazing fire and a glory cloud to come down and fill the Holy of Holies. Little did anyone expect that the entering into the temple, this second temple, God's glory would come in in the form of a humble Galilean peasant from Nazareth named Jesus. He would enter that temple, not in blazing fire and glory, but in humility. And get this, when God returns to the temple, when he returns, he's going to come and he himself is going to be the Passover lamb sacrifice. I know you know that, but think about it from their vantage point. No one would have ever imagined that this is how the story is going to go from their perspective. They're going, okay, God's glory is coming back to the temple. That's what Malachi says. It's going to be blazing bright. That's what they're thinking. That's what it was the other two times. It was blazing bright, terrifying glory. And then they're thinking, okay, Passover lambs are coming. Okay, God's promising Passover. No one would have ever imagined those two things would come together. 
so that a humble man from Nazareth would be God, the word made flesh. He would enter the temple, he would exit the temple, and then he would go out to Gethsemane, be betrayed by one of his own, and then he would be sacrificed on Good Friday as the true Passover lamb. And you you know this, but the blood was placed in those doorposts so that God's wrath would not strike the firstborn, but the angel of death, death would pass over. God sent his firstborn right? He sent his one and only son into the world so that he could bear the full weight and judgment and condemnation. The death angel did not pass over God's son. God's law and justice came down in righteous fury on Jesus. He was slaughtered in our place. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus, at the Last Supper, when he picked up the bread, he was taking the bread and the the, the wine from the Passover meal, and he was turning it into something gloriously new, into the Lord's Supper. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, where where we often read before the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to these words, starting in verse... 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this table is not yet for you. We do not want to eat or drink judgment on ourselves. Instead, you need to deal with the Lord right now where you are. Plead with the Lord to renew your heart, to give you new desires, to forgive you and to change you, transform you by his spirit, and he is faithful to do so. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not walking in unrepentant sin, then we would invite you, as soon as I'm done praying, you may come forward, partake of these elements and return to your seat. And we want to do this, as always, with a sense of sorrow over our sin that made this death necessary, and also with a great joy, knowing that Christ was glad and joy, uh, joyful in his death for us. He wanted to rescue his people from their sins. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, uh, we need, just like that picture in Zechariah, we need an endless supply of your Spirit. God, we need you to pour your spirit into our lives, and you do that especially through your word. So God, I pray we would be people of your word, that we would love it, read it, study it, rejoice in it, be humbled by it, weep over it. God, I pray our lives would be more and more conformed to it, and when we sin, help us to be quicker than ever to repent and to race back to the cross for fresh forgiveness and transformation. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are thankful that you are the Passover Lamb who was offered up for us. 
the glory of God did return. And the glory of God in the person of Christ, he was crucified for us and raised for our justification. So I pray even now you would make these elements even more real to us, what they represent for what Christ has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.